The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And I thought it might be nice to do a little practice check-in tonight. I can continue talking about the hindrances, but first let's just see if people have any questions about their meditation practice or just more generally about the teachings of the Buddha, how they make sense in our lives. So feel free to bring up anything that comes to mind. What you've been learning in your practice, what's been challenging. Yeah, Katie was saying that she, she's interesting, interested in exploring uh, non-clinging and apathy and how for her seems like a trap, it can be a trap for her, this teaching on non-clinging. And most of you know, or many of you know at least, that this is a relatively easy way to summarize the teachings of the Buddha. You know, this is a path of non-clinging. We are cultivating a path of non-clinging. But the thing about non-clinging, it's not so much something that we do, because then that can almost be a kind of aversion, like, oh, I better not cling. Something nice happens to us, you know, and it's like, don't cling. We fall in love, or we get promoted, or it's a beautiful spring day. Don't cling. So it's like fear. And uh, so the even though it is a path of non-clinging, it, that generally is more useful as an aspiration. Like we, the mind, the heart, it aspires to being engaged, intimate, responsive, but without the stickiness of clinging or grasping or attachment. So then, where does that involvement, you know, the non-apathy come from? If it's not about attachment, because normally we equate attachment with really caring about something. I take care of my kid because I really care. I'm attached. Or I take care of my body because I really care. I'm attached. And really this is the whole path is understanding how engagement can flow from love it doesn't have to flow from attachment, from fear. There's two, I mean, just to keep it simple, there's two basic motivations that take us into the world, allow us to make choices, allow us to engage, to speak up when that's appropriate, to stay quiet when that's appropriate. Fear or attachment or greed, you know, that's one, that's the neurotic side. And clearly, much of the activity of the world is driven by those mental qualities. And from Buddhist, from the Buddhist point of view, that's unwholesome. That doesn't lead to ease, doesn't lead to freedom. It causes a reverberation so that when we act out of greed or fear or anger or being disconnected, then even though we're trying to take care of business, trying to make the world a better place, or at least my life a better place, we end up with these reverberations causing more unfinished business than we do finishing any business, resolving what needs to be resolved. And then there's this whole other way. Now, you know, it, it's a little bit uh, confusing to, to use a word like love, because it always begs a question, like, well, what do you mean love? 
as a motivating force in life. Because, you know, our idea of what love is needs to be reformed. Because, just to be honest, mostly what we think love is, is the same as attachment. You know, so it's like, what's the difference between love and attachment? So love is more of a, is what's left as a motivating force. Love is what's left when we tease out all the fear from the mind. Now don't think about this like teasing it out once and for all so there's never going to be fear again, but just in one moment, when fear falls away in one moment, and greed or neediness falls away, and any kind of disconnection like holding back, that falls away. So the mind is free of those different ways that we distance ourselves, disconnect. No greed, no anger or fear, no disconnection or delusion. Then what's left, you could say, is love. Or, you might find it more useful to say what's left is nature. Like, nature, the nature of this mind, the nature of the heart, is to engage, is to respond. And it's just that when that nature gets contaminated with self-centered fear or self-centered greed, well then, that interaction, that involvement, that engagement is is tainted by the greed, by the fear, by the anger, by the delusion. So, the neat thing is we have our whole life, every day, every moment. I mean, today we've had literally thousands of moments to experiment how to respond, how to engage. You know, and we can learn over and over again that when fear or greed is the motivating, like, force behind how I'm choosing, how I'm responding, how I'm acting, then we see what, le- what comes from that. You know, it's just like black and white. It's just like right there, acting itself out in our lives. We see what happens when our motivating force is greed, anger, or delusion. And then, if we're a little bit more skilled so that we have some talent, some competence, and in moments abandoning greed, anger, and delusion, then we still have a life, there's still choices, we're still engaged, right? The life hasn't disappeared, but now, for a few moments, the mind isn't um, influenced by greed, anger, and delusion. Then we see how it is that the heart or mind is responding. And we see what comes from that, what unfolds from that. And that it's, it's sort of a different reality. How more, how much more creative. And even though we might almost say the same thing under the influence of greed, anger, and delusion, and when we're not, but the motivating force behind the world, the words, make it completely different. People know where we're coming from. You know, we could say, how are you doing? And the motivating force could be very manipulative, like we really want something from that person. And we could say the same words, how you doing, but it's just an expression of unconditional kind regard. There's no agenda, no manipulating force behind it. It's really an act of connection, of welcoming being there with that person. And it's just a matter of under what dominion the mind is under, you know, greed, anger, and delusion. The Buddha would call that a worldly mind or an ordinary mind. 
or a mind that's free of greed, anger, and delusion. So apathy, non-clinging isn't related to apathy. Apathy is a kind of aversion. You know, when we're apathetic, we've given up, we're nihilistic, it's because somehow we've been burnt. We've tried to engage, we've tried to get involved, and it's been frustrating, and we feel betrayed by our efforts. So we want to give up. The Buddha talked about three times, three types of craving. Craving for a sense experience, a pleasant sense experience, of course. Craving to become somebody. And the third kind is apathy. Craving for non-existence is sort of the technical definition, but it's really like just wanting to be done, just wanting to give up. It's just it's too much, it's too hard. And that's really what apathy is. It's like, you know, with global warming or with all the injustices and equities in our world, you know, it's just so easy to be, to give up, to be apathetic, because we don't know how to make it right. But what we absolutely can know is how to be a force of good, regardless of how things unfold in the long term. We don't know. We're not in control of that. But we absolutely can be a, you know, a contributor for what is truly good. More peace, more wisdom, a more refined sense of justice, a more powerful clarity about what needs to be said, speaking the truth. And the thing is, that involvement, that engagement, is itself beautiful, even if the whole world falls apart, doesn't take away from our involvement being really skillful and beautiful. We, No one of us is in charge of how things unfold. But in a very real sense, we are responsible for how, moment by moment, you know, where we're coming from, what we're adding to the mix. Are we adding greed, anger, and delusion, more fear? Or are we adding moments of love and compassion and contentedness, like being okay with the way it is, willing to include, willing to be intimate with the way that it is? Thanks for bringing that up. That's kind of a classic, I guess, confusion in the Buddhist practice because we equate sitting still in meditation with disengagement. But actually what we're doing, it's a profound engagement. So if you feel like your meditation practice is about disengagement, you're misunderstanding the practice. We're trying. It's not, of course, we're not always successful. But we're simplifying our environment so that we can learn what full engagement really is. And then if we get pretty good when our environment is really simple, like we're sitting still, we're in a quiet space, the eyes are closed, some of us sit with our eyes closed, some sit with your eyes open, but you understand, like, regardless, we've simplified our environment. So can we completely show up with that simplified environment, being clear, being undefended, meeting it with a whole heart, a loving heart, an undefended heart. And if we good at that more simple environment, then we take it on the road. Yeah, like, go make ourselves breakfast. Can we do that in an intimate way? You know, and if that works, then maybe get on the bus. See how that works. And have an interaction with our boss. Or something like that. A little harder.
Yeah, Jamie. Well, I don't know if it's inhumane. Actually, it might. Uh, having a more honest um, relationship with our loved ones, whether they're pets or humans, having a more honest uh, relationship might actually allow us to be more intimate and more responsive. So we get a little kitten, or we have a child, or we fall in love, or whatever. And we start a relationship with another living being. And, of course, we have a relationship with this living being here, too. So regardless of whether it's an, another living being or this living being, we'd like to immediately, right from this moment on, sustain this truthful recollection that it won't always be this way. You know, this being is of the nature to get old, to get sick, and to die. This being is of the nature to get old, to get sick, and to die. So there's no misapprehension or misunderstanding of that right from the start. That that would be like what the Buddha would say. Don't misunderstand. So all, a lot of us are have friendships or in a intimate relationship and why wouldn't we remember every day that we don't know how long this is going to last? I mean, Jamie, you know this very well. Jamie's had cancer. And, uh, you know, this is shocking often when we get that diagnosis because it didn't occur to us, even though it should because it's so obvious, but it doesn't occur to us that it's going to actually happen to us. It's always such a shock. You know, I'm not supposed to be in that window of, you know, the 5%, 10%, 20%, whatever it is, that get really sick or let alone die. But, uh, so, uh, Buddhism is all about integrating truth. Not, not sort of metaphysical truth, just like basic facts. One of the most basic facts is that everything's uncertain. It's just like so true. No one can argue with that. But have we made, how much of an attempt have we made to integrate that so we're never forgetting uh, the truth of uncertainty, vulnerability? I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago this little interaction Reb Anderson, a well-known Zen teacher in California, had with one of his students. So in one of their practice meetings, Reb asked his student, what's the difference between you and a Buddha? And uh, the student didn't answer. So Reb answered, said, the Buddha, she knows she's vulnerable. She remembers she's vulnerable all the time. And an ordinary person only remembers that some of the time. So when you go home to your kitten or to your dog or your ferret, <laughs> or whatever, your child, yourself, you look in the mirror. You know, it's actually, it, it makes things more poignant to, to realize it won't always be this way. It's just a matter of time. And we don't even know the time frame. It's unknown when, how, but we know what we're saying. We know that this loving relationship isn't meant to last. It's just not in the cards for it to last. And it really strips away superficiality when we remember that. So remember that non-attachment doesn't mean we don't 
feel loss. It just means we don't pathologize loss. The pain of loss is real. Thinking it's a mistake is adding an unnecessary layer of suffering under the very ordinary and appropriate feelings of loss. In the same way like uh, experiencing some success or some beauty or some something wonderful in life, there's going to be a very real joy when a nice day arises or we have a nice interaction with another human being. We don't want to suppress or be afraid of that nice feeling. We just want to understand that it's a temporary thing, like the niceness of today blooms, but we're not going to feel betrayed if three days from now we have snow flurries. You know, it could happen, right? Because we know that, especially this time of year, that things come and go. So why can't we enjoy what's beautiful without getting attached to it, knowing that it's an ephemeral thing? It's like really nice, like why we're relatively, some of us relatively young, relatively healthy, healthy enough to get here on Sunday night, you know, to really appreciate the health we have, because it won't always be this way. You know, maybe we had good food today, and to really appreciate that. Maybe we had some nice interactions. Or just being in a group like this is really nice, and to be appreciative, because it won't always be nice. Sometimes we're going to be in really hostile environments. So, I got picked on Han calls it appreciating the non-toothaches. Knowing that it won't always be that way, but we can appreciate it. The trouble is, with our superficial minds, we, we take these things for granted. We stop noticing how amazing it is. Like, especially, you know, this is a bit of a unusual place, the Twin Cities. You know, it's a, in the great scheme of things, through history and even at this time, it's got to be one of the most orderly places on the planet. And generally, I mean, it's, there's clearly some problems. Inequities, sexism, racism, other sort of problems, serious problems. But generally speaking, it's a safe, harmonious place to a large degree. But we take it for granted. We could be appreciating that. And the same thing when our particular, you know, dose of suffering comes our way, and all the different ways it comes our way, loss of somebody we love, or disappointment in love, or whatever it might be, you know, then to receive that too, embrace that too, okay? Bad things happen to people. This is the bad thing happening to me. I don't have to be afraid of the pain of this bad thing. I just don't want to pathologize the pain. I don't want to make it more than what it is. It's just this pain of loss. It's just this painful feeling of embarrassment or shame. It's just this pain of uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen at work. So we're always uh, finding a way to hold the beautiful and hold the not beautiful. And that's really what non-attachment is pointing to. It's like we're not resisting the gain and loss. 
So when we have the pet and the pet's healthy, we're appreciating it, knowing that it's just something like that's like this now, and I don't know what it will be like later. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, say your name again. Paige. Yeah, that's a really good question, Paige. And uh, in the later um, writings of um, monks after the time of the Buddha, there is this collection of teachings um, called the Path of Purification, uh, written by Buddha, uh, Buddha Gosa. And uh, he kind of outlines these different personality types. So in Buddhism, there are three personality types. And it doesn't mean that you don't have the other two, but one is sort of the lead tendency of your mind, the conditioning of your mind, not your essential mind, but just the, the patterns that have been conditioned in. So you have the deluded type, the greedy type, and the angry type. And it kind of makes sense. You look around at your friends, your neighbors, and things like that, and you'll see that, you know, oh yeah, in most situations, this person's going to lead with anger, or greed, or delusion. And so in that text, the way they define or describe a deluded type, you know, you walk into a room and the mind goes, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? You know, and generally you take your lead by looking at what other people are doing, how they're acting, and you just like, I guess that's what I'm supposed to be doing, I'll just do what they're doing. Because you just don't know. You know, you're deluded, you're disconnected from like, why you came, why you chose, should I do this? Should I do that? You just take your lead from other people, other places. Also, it's like, in terms of objects, you know, like being confused about uh, how to take care of things, what to do with things. The delusion, re- and another uh, powerful expression of delusion, surprisingly, is thinking you know. Because when we're disconnected, it's a very unpleasant feeling to be confused, to not know what you're doing or to not know what's important. So another manifestation of delusion is to strongly pretend that you do know. So kind of an, a forced arrogance where like, thinking you know is a symptom of delusion. Knowing that you don't know or that your seeing is limited, what you know is limited, that's not delusion. That's clarity. That's actually the truth. You know, that our ability to really know what's going on is limited. So to be sensitive to the limitations of our clarity, of how much we're comprehending, that's wisdom. Delusion is like being completely confident that you got you got it. I know what's going on. I know what needs to be done. Because then we're not looking anymore. We're not being sensitive anymore. We just... We've got a plan. And there's a certain comfort in thinking we know what's going on. Because, in a way, it seems harder to be in that not-knowing place, that sensitive not-knowing place, because it's very much like being vulnerable. You know, uncertainty, vulnerable, where we, in a not-very-efficient way, we defend ourselves with our certainty. This is how it is. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is what I need to say. And to to be a little softer, a little more uncertain, and to let our response come out of that uncertainty, actually might we might be so much more effective and creative and skillful in how we 
the spine. So there, although the basic definition of delusion is to be disconnected, to not be seeing things as they are, it can manifest in funny ways. A lot of distractedness, superficiality, where you're interested in things that from somebody else's perspective are clearly not that relevant, you know? Um, the, the, the scene that I love, I always think about this when I bring this up, is this may date me a little bit. Some of you probably have seen Annie, I think it's Annie Hall, the Woody Allen film from long ago. And uh, he and his wife, Annie Hall, are having this argument in their bedroom, I think. And uh, Woody Allen, though he's disconnected, he's obsessing about who killed JFK. You know, were there more than one shooters? John, uh, John Kennedy. You know, were there more than one shooters? You know, and who was it? And then uh, Annie Hall, his wife, says, you know, you just don't want to have this conversation with me about the marriage. And Woody Allen looks at the camera. Right? <laughs> right? Because we, like the things we think are important, whatever it might be, are ways of disconnecting. So, why well, I can't connect is I'm trying to figure this thing out. And, you know, we can go most of our life without settling in, just dropping in, feeling the body, for example. We can spend a whole day disconnected with the body because we think our thoughts are so important, but we miss our life. Because of it. So that's another expression of delusion. Delusion is the seed of anger and greed, right? Because it's being disconnected is what makes greed seem rational. Craving something doesn't make it come our way. It's just insane to be caught in craving, wanting, 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 right? But because we're disconnected, craving, greed, seems sane. seems like it leads somewhere, but it doesn't. Same with anger. Anger is completely dysfunctional. I mean, anger as it's defined in Buddhism, which is pushing away something that's already here. You know, it doesn't make sense to kind of energetically reject like you have a painful feeling and you hate it. But doing this doesn't make the yucky feeling go away. It just adds this on top of the yucky feeling. But when we're disconnected, it seems rational to be hateful or angry at, like, knee pain, for example. Or having too much to do in our lives. And you hate it. You still have a lot to do, way too much, and now you hate it. This, like, we laugh because it's really insane. But it makes so much sense. From the point of view of being disconnected, it makes sense to be hostile to things that already are. So, greed and anger are offshoots of the basic problem of delusion. The Buddha said there's only one evil thing. I mean, just to be provocative, I'll use the word evil. One unskillful thing, and that's ignorance. The mind being disconnected. And so the basic resolution, the whole path, the fruit of it, which is non-clinging, as I talked about before, but the whole path is moving from misperceiving, disconnection, to connecting, seeing things clearly as they are, which naturally leads to the letting go of attachment or clinging. Clinging is what the mind does when it's not connected. Clinging seems to make sense when we're not clearly understanding the way things are. Like in Jamie's comment about a pet, 
it seems to make sense, as you said, Jamie, to get attached to your pet, like, or be attached to your child. But when we really reflect, it doesn't make you a better parent or a better friend of your pet to be attached. All it does is squeezes your heart. Attachment simply squeezes your heart. It's not functional. But it seems so functional. It really does. More than almost anything, grasping seems functional. And here's the really terrible, toxic thing about grasping. When I'm grasping, getting tight, energetically tight, because I love my pet, I don't want anything to happen to her, or something like that, or I love my partner, or I love my life, and I don't want anything bad to happen to it. What is that tight feeling? What what idea does that tight feeling reinforce? It reinforces the sense of self. Like, I know I'm here because I'm tight. It's like that Descartes, you know, I think, therefore I am. It's like, I'm tight, therefore I am. How can I not be here in the sense of separation that I think I am? Like, I'm here. Like, of course I'm here because I'm tight. Because I care. Because I'm attached. Because I don't want bad things to happen. Because I want good things to happen. So that tight feeling we create when we get attached reinforces the notion of separation. There's a me here. Which is the basic expression of ignorance. When we disconnect, that means the mind is under the influence of thinking. And you know, thinking is a wonderful tool that when it's disconnected from the way things are, you can think anything. You know, you can think you're Jesus Christ. You you can think you're the worst person in the world. You can, I mean, thoughts can do anything because they're ungrounded. You know, thinking is like a computer without any programming. It's just like it's got a lot of ability to move information around, but it has no sort of point. And our thinking is a little bit like that. So thinking is only useful when it's being grounded with clear seeing. And what happens is we get confused by the pain of clinging, and it reinforces a programming, a piece of software, which is basically saying, it's all happening to me. You know, this notion of being apart from the whole. And that's the real expression of ignorance. That loop that got in and then the pain of grasping reinforces the loop of separation. The thinking of I'm separate. I'm me who feels this tension. I'm me who feels the squeeze in my heart, who feels the contraction of attachment. And um, and then letting go. See, the thing, from a psychological point of view, when we learn to relax attachment, not to believe it, so we go home, we see the pet, and we feel the attachment rising, and then we remind ourselves, well, like all living beings, this pet will live for a while, and then she'll die. This body will live for a while, and it will die. Things have been coming and going, that is their nature to come and go. This isn't a mistake. It's not some kind of existential betrayal. It's always been this way. And my, although the mind, my mind wants to reflexively tell myself, 
that this is a problem. Why? Is it a problem? Only if I make it a problem. Is impermanence a problem? Does it have to be a problem? You see? It seems so much a problem. Because when we're getting tight, then the tightness starts, oh yeah, it's a problem. But maybe we stay relaxed with impermanence. And then is it a problem? You see, we have to construct the idea that it's a problem. Maybe it isn't a problem. Thanks, Paige, for bringing that up. A little bit more time. Other questions about practice that come to mind? Yeah, Mary Crest. Well, you know, there's different teachings um, for monks and nuns than there are for lay people. But the, the general teaching would be appreciating the limitations of entertainments. Not that entertainments are inherently bad. They're not. There's nothing inherently wrong with things that are fun. In fact, fun can be quite useful for loosening up the mind. You know, we're only experiencing a lot of hardship or a lot of difficulty. The mind gets a little brittle and tight. Yeah, so the, so I think that's the issue though. The, the only problem, the only reason the Buddha brings this up for monks and nuns isn't because of sacred dance or things that are like ritualistic movement that help to bring up beautiful qualities of mind, like joy, like concentration, like a lot of uh, dance forms, uh, traditional dance forms. They're really designed with the rhythms, music, group movement. They're really designed to unify the mind in, in concentrated states, right? And so people learn how to put down all the mundane things that the mind might be obsessing about. And for an evening, they they transcend all of that kind of sense of separation, all the do's, things I have to do, all the fears, all that superficiality gets put down. So there are useful ways to use things like music and dance, but what we don't want to use it for exclusively is to escape. So if we can use, not just dance, but if we can use all of life to open to life, to become more clear, more connected, great. And you know, later schools of Buddhism, um, same with uh, what's now called Hinduism, but it's really the yogic tradition in northern India, back hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha, there was this whole movement, because uh, a lot of the Buddhist teachings got ossified, you know, in the centuries after uh, the time of the Buddha, in these very scholastic monastic settings. And uh, and then, so there was this very appropriate reaction to that and called Tantra. And part of what Tantric practices is sort of using ordinary life experience to open up the heart, to release the heart. And it really is like, what actually is in the way of freedom? We don't want to make it this huge spiritual edifice that we have to climb in order to be free. Because it's really a matter of, in this moment, going beyond the strong tendency to relate with greed, anger, and delusion. It's just a matter of using dance, using washing the dishes, 
using interacting with another human being or feeling the breath coming in and going out, using any of the life experiences that come our way to practice going beyond greed, anger, and delusion. You know, we used to call it a state of unified love or a state of complete letting go. The letting go of greed, anger, delusion, not letting go of movement or letting go of seeing or letting go of touching, right? It's just a letting go of greed, anger, and delusion. Because that's what we use to disconnect, to be apart. The mental activity of greed, anger, and delusion. So in a monastic setting, you know, you don't indulge in entertainments because they keep us, they're sort of distractions. But if it's not an entertainment, if it's not a way to... Uh, entertain yourself in a superficial way so you don't feel the pain of your life, you know, then it's not a problem, whatever it is. Just like, you know, reading a book or watching a TV show can be a way to open up and, and connect more with your life or can be just an escape. The only problem with escapes is it doesn't lead anywhere. You're not any wiser at the end of escaping, even if it's a relatively fun escape. You know, so you don't, we don't want to be dependent on escapes, different ways of escaping our life. Doesn't mean it's terrible if we indulge in escapes, but we don't want to fool ourselves that we're getting anywhere. We're just getting a break. You know, it's like a mental vacation when we watch a silly TV show. It's a little vacation. But if it becomes, if we become addicted to the TV shows, to keep us from feeling the uh, underlying anxiety of our life, then actually we're missing an opportunity to learn to be free. And we become, in the dependence on the escape itself becomes suffering. I'm sure you've noticed that. I feel that way about a book I'm reading now. It's like, I realize I'm, my mind is dependent on the entertainment. You know, and uh, it's like how to skillfully use it without becoming dependent, because dependency is suffering. So it's a fine line, it can be a fine line for some of those entertainments. Other thoughts that come to mind about practice? Well, I'm not exactly sure your experience, but is it that when a moment of mindfulness arises, so all of a sudden there's a more profound sensitivity, and then what can come in right after that moment of mindfulness is, uh, just to be a little graphic, disgust. It's like all of a sudden there's sensitivity, and then there can be a wave of disgust like, I can't believe I'm thinking that, or I can't believe I've done that. You see, that's different than the moment of mindfulness. That's like there's a moment of sensitivity, and then as the mind is sensitive, it's in a sense receiving the way it is connecting with the way it is, then the question is, as it's receiving, does the mind begin to feel threatened by what it's being sensitive to? And then you want to notice that, be mindful of that feeling of overwhelm. Like, oh, this is too much. This feels like too much. Well, can that be okay? If you have to manage sensitivity, it's like, one of the things, this is a classic issue for people who have really dug into the practice, maybe for, you know, half a year or a year, but 
but really into it, like sitting most days, doing some retreats. And all of a sudden, you know, after a couple months or a little longer, they're a different human being. They're, they're so much more sensitive than they were. And it's not like they're sensitive just when they're sitting, but they go home after a sit or they go home after a retreat. And it's like their skin's been peeled off. They're so raw. They sense everything. They sense other people's stuff. They sense their own stuff. They see beauty. They see pain and suffering. And it's, uh, and they see the defilement, right? They see all the unwholesome tendencies of the mind to be stingy, to be needy, to want to get revenge, to want to disconnect. And it's disgusting. I mean, there's quite literally a, a visceral disgust in seeing all this. So we absolutely want that sensitivity, but we need wisdom to catch up to the sensitivity. Wisdom means that all of what's being seen is impersonal. So you may see things that are disgusting, but it's not you who's disgusting. You know, you might see the mind doing something really inappropriate or being really superficial or really stupid or ignorant, but it's not personal. Wisdom understands it's not personal. Wisdom understands just causes and conditions unfolding lawfully. There's no air in there, you know, being inappropriate. There's an inappropriate thought or an unskillful thought, but there's no, I mean, conventionally speaking, of course, we say, boy, what you said earlier was stupid, you know, or whatever, you know. But the fact is, when we look at it moment by moment, we see, no, no, there were causes and conditions. There were some conditioning, some tendencies of this personality. And when those causes and conditions met that tendency, this thought or those words arose. You know? And then the mind judges it as being un- unskillful or inappropriate. And now there's just sensitivity to all that. But it's impersonal. It's just causes and conditions. So this happens with sensitivity. It's it's a little shocking, like a rude awakening. And and sometimes we feel like, I need to dull it. You know, how do I turn it down a notch or a couple notches? Because it's just too intense to be sensitive. And it's totally, it's just, I think it's endemic in the meditation, mindfulness meditation world or the Buddhist practice world where people have a hard time handling sensitivity. It's really useful to have other friends who are as into the practice as you, because it's really good to like say to somebody, "Am I going crazy, or is just you know, or is this normal?" You know, to feel in a way so out of place, because one of the things we notice with profound sensitivity is how, generally speaking, everybody else seems to be mostly insensitive, you know, oblivious. Have you noticed that sometimes? And it's very easy to get aversive or judgmental, which is not how we want to relate sensitivity. We don't want to, because that's going in the wrong direction, to use aversion or judgment to protect our sensitivity is counterproductive. We really want to use love and understanding and forgiveness and patience and those kinds of qualities to protect the sensitivity. 
so that we, over time, with more and more practice, we can become profoundly sensitive. That's how we take care of the whole world, is being radically sensitive, but not overwhelmed by it. But it's, it's messy. You know, it's like learning to have, or learning how to let wisdom catch up with the sensitivity. Because generally, sensitivity is easier to develop than wisdom. So sensitivity for most people develops first, and then wisdom follows along. We've been talking the last month about the hindrances, greed, ill will or anger, restlessness and dullness and doubt as patterns of forces in the mind, good friends. They really are teachers, so it might be you know, useful for people to share how you see, see these tendencies that have been conditioned. They're impersonal, but there they are, conditioned into the mind. What have you learned? Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, they're very powerful. Similes pack a lot of information. So the, the, the ones that uh, Will's talking about, so greed is like being in debt. Ill will is like being sick. And think about it both stepping out of debt. So when the mind isn't caught in greed, it's like not being in debt, like a contentedness. Or not being sick is like when the mind isn't caught by ill will or aversion. And then dullness is like being in prison. And like uh, Will said, restlessness is being enslaved. And doubt is being on a dangerous road, lost in a dangerous place for the tigers. What, what did they say in Wizard of Oz? Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Right? So being lost in that kind of place. And these similes, you know, they're just different ways we experience the squeeze on the heart. Being caught in restlessness, being caught in dullness, being caught in greed and aversion. And there's no freedom from these conditioned tendencies of our mind without the mind clearly recognizing, oh, it's doubt. See, it's different when we know, oh, this is what it's like to be lost in a dangerous road. This is what it's like to be enslaved by restlessness. This is what it's like to be imprisoned by sleepiness. This is what it's like to be sick with anger. You know, This is what it's like to be in debt with wanting. I'm not happy. I need that. When we can see it, then we can transform the relationship we have to it. When we're not seeing it, we're basically just acting out the conditioning. We're, we're trapped in it, the pattern. Let's leave it here tonight. I... This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org